Uh, do me a favor, turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Kings chapter 17, and we will be in all of it this evening. Uh, if you haven't been with us before, maybe it's your first time, first time back in a while, we've spent about a year working through the book of 1 Kings. We started last October. Uh, we'll probably finish never, but maybe close to October. Um, and we just picked this up again last week. And last week, one of the things that we noted is that because of Solomon's sin, the, the nation of Israel splits. It fractures down the middle. It becomes two kingdoms, one known as Israel, one known as Judah. And then through verse, or chapters 15 and 16, you basically trace the downward spiral of both of these countries getting worse and worse and worse as they continuously sort of fall into idolatry. Until finally, they reach sort of the lowest point in their national history with a king named Ahab. And Ahab is sort of the villain of the rest of this book. He's, he's really the villain in uh, Jewish history as being one of the worst kings that Israel has ever had, uh, the one who's done the most damage to uh, them as a people, them as a nation. But, but Ahab, for all of his evil, all of his wickedness, I just punched that, um, for everything wrong with Ahab, uh, his story is not unique to himself. Uh, he's not the first to do the things that he's done. Uh, one of the things that we talked about last week is that so often the Bible echoes itself uh, throughout other portions of Scripture. It sort of alludes to previous events to give you a sense of how you should interpret what's sitting in front of you. Uh, I was having a conversation about this uh, a couple weeks ago with some friends, and I was talking to Forrest, one of the guys who led us in worship, and we were talking about this idea of the Bible echoing itself and how music can kind of help us understand what that looks like. And uh, Forrest is like a Star Wars super fan. So if you want to have an authoritative opinion on Star, Star Wars, Forrest is the person to ask. Uh, but he's talking about the soundtrack to uh, the, the newest Star Wars movies. And he said when, when it first came out, he listened to the whole thing. And there's all of these new movements of music. There's all these new bits of uh, song and structure. But every once in a while, in the middle of this new song, you'll hear one of the old sort of classic Star Wars songs playing in the background. And, and it sounds a little bit different because there's uh, a different arrangement going on around it. And yet, as you sort of hear the classic Star Wars theme song, uh, you, you remember everything that's associated with those songs. Now, this is maybe kind of a, a picture of what's going on here in Ahab's life. Now, obviously, Ahab lives his own life, but in many ways it echoes all of these terrible things from Israel's past. Uh, he builds temples to pagan gods. So he begins to worship the gods of the nations rather than the nations turning to the one true God. Uh, he has Jericho rebuilt, uh, which is sort of a reversal of the Exodus. And so the land of Israel goes back to the way that it was if the Exodus had never happened, if the people of God had never been there. And this is where we find ourselves. In chapter 17, Ahab is doing the work of turning the Exodus backwards. And in chapter 17, verse 1, we hear this. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here, turn eastward, hide yourself by the brook Sharif, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook. Sharif, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook, and after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So um, imagine that, that the nation of Israel is sort of crumbling under the reign of Ahab. 
But God's not going to just uh, stand by and let his work among the people of Israel be undone. And so he raises up this prophet that becomes really famous throughout the Bible, Elijah. Uh, we still name people after this particular prophet because of how influential he is. But as famous as Elijah is, man, maybe you grew up in the church and you heard a whole bunch of Sunday school stories about him. I'm sure there's a Veggie Tales episode about Elijah at some point or another. Maybe you saw sort of felt board depictions of uh, some of his achievements. We really don't get any background on him. Like we, we really just know the tribe that he's from and he just sort of launches into it. We don't get any sort of upbringing. We don't, we don't even know how God speaks to him. He just starts talking. And the first thing that he says is this. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, I hope if, if you've been in this ministry for any length of time, you've developed a sense of understanding that when things happen in the Bible, they're almost always important. Uh, they're very rarely is the Bible just recording details for, for fun. Uh, but, but what is being said is always profoundly significant. And I would say uh, also when it comes to the miracles recorded in Scripture, we have this sense when, when we sort of look at the Bible from afar that it's just shot through with miracles on every page. Uh, more often than not, there's not that many miracles in any given book of the Bible. Uh, miracles are exceptionally rare if you read through the Bible front to back. And when they happen, they're not haphazard. They're, they're happening for a reason. God is saying something in what he does. So when Elijah says to Ahab, it's not going to rain in Israel for the next three years, that's not just like a neat magic trick, right? That's, that's not just sort of a, hey, isn't it cool? I can make it rain or not rain whenever I want. It's like the, the vegetable section at Publix where it rains every hour depending on what Elijah says. Um, now, there's some background here that's going to be helpful. Uh, Ahab has chosen to worship a god named Baal or Baal, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I should have looked this up before I started the sermon. This is the god of rain in the ancient world. This is the God of rain for the Sidonians. So Ahab has chosen to worship a God which promises to bring rain if that God is appeased. So when Elijah stands up and he says, it will not rain in Israel as surely as the Lord God lives, it is a direct assault against the idols that Israel has chosen to worship. It is Yahweh saying to the people of Israel and to Israel's king, this God that you trust for your rain has no power. He's an empty, dead lifeless idol and you are unwise to put your confidence in him so when elijah says it's not going to rain this is god smashing down an idol that israel's placed her confidence in and i can tell you that as ancient as this story is and however many thousands of years ago this took place uh, the holy one of israel is still in the business of smashing our idols uh, he's still very much in the business of taking the things that we've invested our confidence in apart from him and tearing them out of our hands um when I was wrapping up college, uh, I, I had this idea in my mind that my life would really start once I moved out from my parents' house. Like there was a, a sense, and I think I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder because all of my cousins my age had moved out before me. And so I would try to like have conversations at Christmas and they would always pick on me for not living on my own. And so um, I had this sense of like, when I move out, things will finally start happening. Life will really happen. I'll finally feel like an adult. Uh, things will really start going my way. And so uh, right when I was wrapping up college, I was just relentlessly hunting for the cheapest apartment I could find in the coolest area that I could imagine. And I finally found this apartment for really cheap uh, in Seminole Heights, 
before Seminole Heights was nearly as terrible as it is now. And, and so I, I saved up money. I, I got my car fixed so that it wouldn't break down in the first couple of years while I was learning how to pay rent and pay bills. Uh, moved into this apartment. The first month and a half like, was inviting my friends over every day just to kind of show them, look how cool I am and look at my awesome apartment in the city. You should all be so impressed and jealous of me. And, and then after the first month, um, I started noting, noticing what, what I thought were just like piles of dirt throughout the apartment. And so I assumed I must not be like cleaning my shoes off well enough when I walk in. And so I started taking my shoes off at the door and actually using the welcome mat that you're supposed to uh, dust your feet off with. But the piles of dirt continued appearing and they continued appearing in more and more abundance. And then one morning I woke up covered in insects and freaked out. I was like, God is judging me. This is a plague from Egypt. <laughs> I don't know what I have done to deserve this. But it's just covered in insects, and so I, so I stand up and I like brush them off, and then I walk into my kitchen, and they're all over the kitchen counter too. And so I, I sort of sweep them into a Ziploc bag, uh, and then I go to my landlord, and I'm like, "Do you know? Did you know about this? Like when you rented me this apartment?" He's like, well, "I have no idea what that is. Why don't you go to Home Depot and check check with them?" So I take this bag full of bugs that were crawling on me in my sleep, and I walk to the guy in Home Depot, and he says, "Oh, those are termites. You've got termites." And I said, well, do you have anything to fix termites? And he goes, of course not. You have to tent it. There's no other way. Um, in, <laughs> you can laugh. It's funny now. We tented it. It worked, right? Um, but what, what followed from that was about seven or eight months of me trying to convince my landlord to tent my apartment, um, him trying all of the other options other than tenting, which I understand it's, it's super expensive, um, and me having like a full-blown meltdown because I had invested so much confidence in the idea of moving out and I had invested so much of my identity in look who I am with my cool apartment. I had invested so much of my future into this particular object uh, that when there was the possibility of it being taken away from me, I was devastated. Uh, and, and there was a, a point at which I was sort of walking around my neighborhood because it was nighttime and when you turn the lights on, all the termites come out of the holes in the roof and swarm. So I was like, I can't go back to my apartment until I'm going to sleep because then the lights will be out and the termites won't attack me. Uh, so I'm walking my neighborhood going like, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to move back in with my parents. Everybody's going to think that I'm some sort of a failure and that I couldn't make it on my own. I'll never find an apartment cheap enough to afford like this one. Like I'm, I'm freaking out. And it just occurred to me, th this has become my idol. This idea of being on my own in the city has become an idol. And whether this is an act of God or the ordinary course of nature, God is taking my idol from me right now and teaching me that I, I cannot invest my worth in this particular thing because it will never make good on it. This is what's happening in a grand scale in Israel. You want to trust Baal for the rain? It's not going to rain anymore because he can't make good on what you think he promises. Maybe you found yourself here tonight in this last six months, in, in this last year, you are in this moment or this season in which God is smashing down the idols of your life. Maybe it was a relationship that you'd invested your confidence in. Maybe it was a potential job that you thought would be a life-defining career move. Maybe it was your education that you thought would go so much better than it did. And you are seeing these idols torn from your hands. And, and there can be a sense when this happens that, that this is cruelty. 
We, we can feel like God is being unkind to us, but I, I want you to know that just as withholding the rain from Israel was an act of judgment, it's also an act of mercy on the part of God. And when God tears down our idols, it is an act of judgment, but it's absolutely mercy. Listen, only a wicked God would let you and I continue to seek life in something that can't offer it. And so when he takes these things from us, it's painful, but it's for our good. So Elijah speaks to Ahab, and he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him and said, Depart from here, turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook of Sharif, which is east of the Jordan. So Elijah goes. Now, I don't know that God needed to tell him to leave because I would venture to say when he told the king who worships the rain god that it's not going to rain anymore, that the king probably wanted him dead. But Elijah does as God says. He leaves, he goes eastward. And, and what we know from geography is that he goes eastward into the wilderness. This should sound familiar to you because this has all happened before. When Israel leaves Egypt in the Exodus, they go eastward into the wilderness. The promised land that Israel has inhabited has become a new Egypt. And now one of the only faithful people to worship Yahweh is sent back into the wilderness just like the people of Israel before. And the, the, the wilderness is an interesting thing in the ancient world. It's an interesting thing in our day because there's less and less of it as time goes on and, and populations increase. Uh, but in the ancient world, the, the wilderness, w people thought of it in, in a lot of sometimes what, what seems like opposed and diametrically opposed ways. So they saw it in, in one sense as a place where people went to meet with God. You would go out into the wilderness to have some sort of a spiritual encounter with the divine. See Moses in the burning bush. See Moses on Mount Sinai. See in the history of the church the desert fathers who go out into the wilderness and like fast for 10 months and do battle with demons and all sorts of crazy stuff. That's the other part of it. In, in the mind of an ancient person, not only was the wilderness a place where you'd go to meet with God, but it was a place where the forces of darkness were particularly powerful. See Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. These seem like these two sort of conflicting ideas about the same location. I'll tell you, if you spend more than two hours in the woods alone, you'll see how you can hold both of those ideas in your head at the same time. Like there's, there's one sense in which man, the woods are beautiful and wonderful and isn't God's creation grand? And then you hear the first noise from afar that might be a bear and you go, this place is evil and I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> so Elijah goes into the wilderness, this place that, that in some sense is where people meet with God, but in another sense is the Wild West, is, is spiritual no man's land. And, and while he's in the wilderness, we're told that the ravens feed him, uh, that he drinks from the brook, the point being this, um, the Holy One of Israel, the God whom we serve, the God whom Elijah served, he is Lord over Israel, but he's also Lord over the wilderness. He's not just God in the borders of Israel, he's God even out here in the wild. But Elijah doesn't stay there for long. Eventually the brook dries up, and so we're told in verse 8, the word of the Lord came to him, arise, Go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose, and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her, and he said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Um, so remember what I said earlier. Um, 
events recorded in the Bible are almost never incidental. They're, they're almost never passing comments. So when you hear Elijah went to Zarephath and Sidon, this is not just a passing comment. Um, something really confront, confrontational is happening here. Uh, this might help us kind of understand what's taking place. Um, so 2010, 2011, um, later than that, 2012 or 13, uh, I'd lost a little bit of weight, and so all my friends who had gained a little bit of weight started giving me their shirts, uh, which was great because my wardrobe just increased exponentially in a very short period of time. Um, and I didn't pay much attention to, to the shirts that people gave me. Like, as long as it wasn't offensive, I, don't, I wasn't really concerned by it. Um, and then the other thing you should know about me is that I know absolutely nothing about sports. These two things are important to understand the story. Um, so uh, I went to USF for my undergraduate degree. My friend Doug, whose brother went to UCF, gave me a UCF Knights t-shirt. And I pulled out the shirt and I said, it's a school, there's a knight on it. Knights are cool. It'd be cooler if it was a wizard, but knights are also cool. I'll wear this to class today. I didn't know two things. One, that the university that I'd attended for a couple years is like bitter rivals with University of Central Florida. And two, we'd lost like every football game against them for the last few years. So I get onto campus, um, and there's a guy in the parking lot in a giant truck just screaming at me. And I, I can't understand what he's saying, and I don't understand why he's upset, but he's saying, I, what I can make out is really mean. And I was like, man, you don't, did I take your parking space? I have, like, I have no idea what's going on, right? Um, and then I get to class, and my professor goes, you're pretty bold to do this here. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> Just to wear a shirt like that on campus, especially after all that's happened, that's a pretty brave move of you. And I said, what? And then she explained to me, right, that, that USF and UCF hate each other. There's this deep-seated rivalry, and so me wearing the, the UCF t-shirt into Bulls territory uh, was an, an affront to the dignity of universe, University of South Florida students. Um, here's why I say all this. Uh, one, to highlight my incompetence when it comes to things related to sports. Um, two, Elijah is sent to Sidon. Sidon is where Jezebel is from. Jezebel worships the native god of her home country, which is Baal. So when Elijah leaves Israel, he goes to the wilderness, and then he goes to the home country of the God that Israel now worships. This is the equivalent of wearing like a Team Yahweh shirt to, to a Baal homecoming game. Uh, he steps into the heart of the worship of this false God. And this is where God sends him. And he says, there's a widow there that's going to take care of you. We're told that when he came into this city, he arose, he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he called her, and he said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat and die. So what it it appears is the case is that there's a drought going on in Israel where they're worshiping Baal, the god of rain. Um, there's a drought going on in Sidon where they also worship Baal, the god of rain. Here's why this is important. Um, it shows Elijah and everybody else who's watching him that Yahweh is not just Lord of Israel, he's Lord of all of the nations. 
that his authority doesn't just extend to the borders of Israel or even into the wilderness. It extends into the heart of the place where other gods are worshipped and revered. He is Lord of the whole earth, not just part of it. One of the foundations um, for missions, for, for sending uh, Christian missionaries to the nations, uh, is this fundamental fact. There is only one God. Now, now it, it may not feel that way, Initially, like we, we tend to think we, we send people to the nations because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and we want them to know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Yes, absolutely. But one of the things that Paul will say in 1 Timothy is you should pray for all people that they would come to a knowledge of salvation. Why? Because there's only one God. Um, if there were sort of regional tribal deities, like if there was the God of America and then the God of England and then the God of France and then the God of Egypt then we could throw up our hands and say, let their gods take care of them. Let them worship their gods and we'll worship ours. But if there's only one, then that means the whole earth belongs to him. This is what Elijah sees, is that the God of Israel is not just the God of Israel, he is the God of the whole world. And this is why we as a ministry send people to Scotland, send people to the Middle East. This is why we as a church send people to Africa and to Honduras, because he is Lord not just of any one nation, but of the nations. And it is right for him to be praised among the nations. While Elijah's there, something interesting happens. Um, the flour and the oil that the widow had thought would only last her the rest of the day uh, sort of miraculously multiply. Uh, you'll see this again in the New Testament with something like Jesus feeding the 5,000. And that there's uh, more than enough uh, of the resources that these people need. And th this could be a sermon unto itself. Um, but, but maybe it's, it's just worth saying this, uh, that as long as Elijah is present, uh, the widow and her son have what they need. Uh, they are blessed uh, in their resources. They are blessed with uh, the sort of thing that will give them life. I, I don't think this is meant to just be true for Elijah. I, I think this is meant to be true for Israel, and it's meant to be true for us as the people of God now. Uh, namely this, um, that the presence of the people of God among uh, even those who are not believers, it, it ought to be a source of blessing for them. Uh, people should be able to say, we are better off for the Christians among us. Societies should be able to say, we are better off for the presence of God's people here, even if I don't believe their gospel, even if I don't believe uh, in their God. Your friend group should be able to say, we're better off for having Steve, Susie, John here. I don't know what this gospel thing is about, but their presence is a blessing to us. Could that be said of you? Or are you a curse to the people around you? Elijah, in his presence, even among this pagan, is a blessing. But ultimately, even in the face of all of this life, death still comes. We're told in uh, verse 17. After this, the son of the woman mistress of the house became ill his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him she said to Elijah what have you against me O man of God you have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance to cause the death of my son he said to her give me your son and he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he was lodged he laid him on his own bed he cried to the Lord O Lord my God have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Um, 
So at some point during Elijah's stay, it seems that he's there for a number of years. But at some point, the, the son of this woman who's taken him in dies. Um, that's, that's a tragedy just in and of itself because she's a widow. She's already lost her husband and now she's lost her son. Uh, but that's a greater tragedy in the ancient world uh, because unless she has family to take her in, in her old age, there is nobody to take care of her now. Uh, there are not government systems in place to take care of elderly widows. And so in, in the death of her son, her whole future dies. Her whole hope for safety and security is utterly removed from her. And she, she says to Elijah, why would you do this? Do you have something against me? Are you bringing my sins to remembrance to cause the death of my son? We, we don't know what she's referring to. But she seems to think that the death of her son is related to some sort of a sin in her life. And Elijah responds in two ways. Both of them, I think, are instructive for us. The first thing that he does is he takes uh, the boy and he lays him in the bed upstairs and he cries out to God, Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Um, I'm convinced that the Bible gives us a whole lot more freedom in prayer than, than what most Christians are willing to take up. I'm convinced that you have permission from Scripture to say an awful lot more to God than most people are comfortable saying. Elijah has seen God withhold rain in Israel, in the wilderness, now in this pagan country. He's seen the jar of flour and oil multiply. And now he's seen the widow's son die, and his, refer his first response to God is, what are you doing? Really? You brought me here to be with this family and then killed this woman's son. Why would you do this? I think, I don't think, I know, unless you feel the freedom to be this honest with God in your prayers, when your life goes south and at some point or another it will, your faith will not survive. Unless you feel the freedom to go before God like the psalmist, like Elijah, like Job, and say, what on earth are you doing? You will struggle mightily when things take a turn for the worst. Elijah goes before God, even after everything he's seen, and he says, you really brought me here to kill this woman's son. But Elijah doesn't stop with that. And if your prayer stops with that, then you're not being faithful to Scripture. Uh, Elijah's prayer begins with, Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, Oh, Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. The life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Elijah's honesty before God is not sort of some parting words before he turns away, but he's honest with God, and then he moves closer to God in prayer. I can't believe you would do this, that you would kill this woman's son, but even still, I'm asking you, bring this boy back to life. Now, that is a radical thing to pray in any day and age. Way more radical back here, because to my knowledge, nobody had come back from the dead yet in Old Testament history. Elijah has no precedent for this, but he asks. Let this boy's life come back into him. 
and in his mercy, God does so. The boy comes back to life, and we're told that Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. The woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So why does all of this happen? Why does any of this take place? Why does a God who is sovereign uh, allow these things to transpire? Um, Two thoughts. Israel is not just worshiping Baal, the god of rain. Uh, They're worshiping Asherah, the god of fertility and life. They've chosen a god who they believe is sovereign over the weather and a god who they believe is sovereign over uh, over life. And in this particular city, there's the god Mot, who's the god of the underworld, the keeper of the dead, that's also being worshiped. So you have all of these idols that claim to be in charge of all of these different things. Rain, life, and death. And situation after situation after situation, Yahweh says, Baal is not Lord of the rain, I am. Asherah is not Lord of life, I am. Mot doesn't have the power to keep the dead, I bring resurrection. Again and again and again, he smashes down the idols of the people. He's showing his sovereignty in all of these different areas where he's so unexpected. But, but centuries later, he'll demonstrate all of these things to be true again. We're told after the baptism of Jesus that the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. And there, rather than being fed by ravens, he's sustained purely by the Word of God. He faces the great tempter, Satan. He lays down his life and takes it up again, showing that he is sovereign over death. And then in the Great Commission, he says to the disciples, all authority has been given to me. Go to the nations, because they're mine. The Lord of the wilderness, the Lord of life and death, the Lord of the nations, all of it finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Notice the widow's response to what happens. I don't really know what she's thinking while this jar of oil and flour just keep magically multiplying in her kitchen. Um, But it doesn't seem like she's totally convinced. I don't know how you stay unconvinced of what Elijah's saying based on that. Um, But for however many years, she seems to be on the fence about everything Elijah's saying. When her son comes back to life, she says, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. What proves the truthfulness of the God of Israel? It's resurrection. It's resurrection from the dead that confirms that everything that Elijah is saying is true. How much more, for those of us who know that Christ has been raised, should we listen to him, knowing that his word is truth? Let's pray. Father, um, you're gracious to give us your word, inspired by the Spirit, uh, written through the pen of uh, men and women throughout the ages. And Lord, you give us all these things for our good, for our edification, that we might see Jesus in them. Lord, I pray that tonight, as we continue in our time together, um, that your word would dwell in us richly, that we would accept with um, gratitude when you take our idols from us, that as we even reflect in our own lives about the idols that we have set in place of you, God, I pray that you would give us the courage to set them aside, uh, to restore you to your rightful throne in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would show us uh, and encourage us 
uh, by the things that we've talked about in your word. We ask all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.